Hi, and welcome to the LHA Trust Fund's first member-focused podcast on hot topics from questions we get from you, our Trust Fund members. My name is Stacy Jenkins, and I'm Director of Clinical Risk Management with HSLI, and I'll be your host today, along with Senior Risk Consultant Barbara Vanchet. Joining us today are Ken Alexander, who is the Vice President of LHA, and Alain Whaley-Martin, Project Manager of the Hospital Preparedness Program. You want to introduce yourself, Alain? Well, good morning. Thanks for having me. I'm Alain Whaley-Martin. I've recently joined the Louisiana Hospitals Association Research and Education Foundation uh, to work within the Hospital Preparedness Program. Um, but I came to LHA from the Our Lady of the Lake, where I worked in safety for 16 years and had responsibility for emergency management. Hi, and I'm Ken Alexander. I'm a vice president with LHA, and I've been with LHA almost seven years now, and I call myself a recovering CEO. My background, I have a clinical background in respiratory therapy, did department management, and then ran hospitals for a number of years, and been uh, blessed to be able to help hospitals around the state with LHA, and part of my responsibility set is emergency preparedness. So I oversee uh, the Research Education Foundation's emergency preparedness staff and that work. I also work with the state, and as Alin does as well, and embed uh, with what we call the ESF-8, or that health and medical function during natural disasters and events. And I've also had to handle hospital, um, hospital issues as a CEO during Katrina, and, and I'm old, so there's been a few other hurricanes on top of that. <laughs> You're not too old. Well, we thank you for joining us today. And the focus of our podcast today we thought would be um, pretty timely since it's the beginning of hurricane season. We wanted to talk about, um, in general, hospital emergency preparedness and kind of take a special focus or spotlight on the emergency preparedness as it relates to your medical records. You know, let's go back, let's start. I think that it's a great topic, and um, I'm going to turn it to Alin in just a minute to, to talk about some of the specifics, but to kind of give a little context and background. If you go back, what, almost nine years now to Katrina, when, and then three years later for Gustav, where we thought we learned a lot evacuating patients out of New Orleans for Katrina, and then in comes Gustav three years later, and we're still entering, you know, when, when hospitals decide to evacuate, we had a, a, um, an email address. And honest, honest story, every patient that had to be evacuated out of a hospital during Hurricane Gustav had their name put in a spreadsheet and sent to evacuate me now at yahoo.com. And that was the email address that hospitals used. Rudimentary, yes. Uh, was it effective? Marginally. So since Gustav, we've done a lot of work preparing, helping hospitals better automate and better prepare themselves uh, to have um, their patients identified and listed and also give them plans in general for when they need to evacuate patients or when they need to shelter in place and how, that, how those mechanisms need to work. Uh, the state has two basic big um, software programs, at-risk registry, which we'll talk about, which is where all the patients, instead of going to evacuate me now at yahoo.com, go into a software base, uh, at-risk registry that has basic patient identifiers and conditions. And then also the hospital, most hospitals are already familiar with MSTAT, right. which is the reporting program for the state where they say, yes, we have power, no, we don't. Yes, we have oxygen, no, we don't. Uh, our current census is X, Y, Z, and one, two, three. Um, so, 
but Alain's had to actually live that uh, through her work uh, at the lake and also as a volunteer designated regional coordinator for the last 10 years. And so um, what's kind of the, you know, that basic setup, Alain? Well, I think, I think for hospitals to truly be prepared for hurricane season and should they ever have to evacuate, to me it all goes back to having a solid program and a plan in the beginning. Uh, making sure that you've done a real thorough risk assessment and understand what your vulnerabilities are so that you can make great decisions once you get into a hurricane or, or another scenario. Uh, I think uh, 2013 has been a great lesson for us to end 2014 so far about all the different things that can happen in Louisiana outside of hurricane season that may actually affect a hospital's ability to function. Uh, so starting back there and getting us to the point of making sure that we have a great plan in place and that we've thought through what's our steps should be, should our facility not be able to, to maintain its operations and we have to move patients and what's our next step. Um, the first part of that is knowing, um, number one, what your patients are, who's going to have to go, and then where you're going to take them there. Then how are you going to get them there? I guess there are three components to that, is making sure that you have an alternate care site. Um, for many hospitals, that's just a sister facility that's part of their health system. Um, um, but for independent hospitals or those that are not associated with a different one, that might be a different conversation. And they need to think through, well, where can my patients go? Um, who could host them? And can that happen within the state? Or is that something that's going to have to go to another location? Moving your patients is the next step. Um, we know in Louisiana we are limited in the number of ambulances that are available, so we have to think through, is there another way to move our patients, and how do I make sure that I have those ar uh, arrangements in place? And then finally, really having a good working relationship with how all that structure works so that when the time comes and you have to move your patients, you've prepared and you've already thought it through, and then it doesn't have to be a crisis within a crisis. Um, I wanted to uh, make a point because a lot of the folks that are going to be listening to this podcast know Stacy and I very well and uh, know that we ask uh, questions in particular uh, regarding emergency preparedness. And oftentimes our perception of their knowledge of it, depending on who you're asking, is that someone in the system attends the drills or the tabletops or whatever that is. And um, I, I would hope that today's discussion brings home the, the primary thought that the emergency preparedness process is everyone participating and sharing information and that decisions are a team effort, not just something on paper that you know exists. So uh, I'm hoping that as we go through this for the next few minutes, that those highlighted pieces are things that people are going to actually think about and say, hey, I have some input about this. I can see what could happen in my department if the information is not a two-way street in your organization. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the things that we really stress and we have um, put some focus and some energy on is getting, uh, getting hospitals and making those notifications for trainings, one for incident command system, which speaks to what's the hierarchy of information, what's the hierarchy of information flow in a hospital, who does what job, who has what role, and that's effective when it's put into place. Uh, and also from um, just that information gathering uh, and dissemination is there's rounds uh, that we do around the state 
uh, multiple times a year along with those trainings where hospitals are encouraged and to participate in the preparedness program grant funding are required to attend these rounds meetings where a lot of that information is disseminated and a lot of good dialogue and conversation comes around. And uh, to just kind of go back before we kind of dive into, I know we want to talk about medical records. We want to talk about some of the things specific to that is, you know, not only, Lynn mentioned it, but it's not just hurricanes. Uh, if you remember the Mississippi River floods of just a few years ago, we had hospitals that had to evacuate, entire facilities evacuated, where then there was mechanisms that had to be taken to keep their information technology safe, to keep their network infrastructure safe and backed up, and where those patients went and what they went with as far as the knowledge and education, medications, and records that the receiving facility was going to have. So. Yeah, and Ken brings up a great point. So, I mean, thinking about, um, and as we've really evolved as a healthcare industry and going more and more towards electronic systems, our dependence on electricity has gotten to be so much greater. Exactly. And, and facilities should think about, and it, it's truly, it's not just during hurricane season. Facilities should really think about making sure that they have a reliable power source and a way to back up that information ongoing. Thinking about the ice storms this winter, there were facilities that experienced power outages and having to go on generator power because of damage to um, the, the power system related to the ice storm. Well, my goodness, no one would have ever thought about that in South Louisiana before this past year, um, but that's right. where we were at. Um, so, you know, thinking, you know, certainly we're focused most on hurricane season today, but it, but it truly can happen on any other day um, uh, within the year. So hospitals should plan for, well, how do I support my information system, whether it's a paper record or a combination record or fully electronic? What is my backup that exists there? And then where does that go if I lose power in my facility? I think the best practice is to have a remote backup site, um, preferably in a different state or a different region, someplace that is not likely to be affected, but that can be very expensive. And so facilities really need to think through that and plan ahead to make sure that they have that, that continuity of information going forward should they happen to lose information and what, the, and what their next steps will be. Well, Alain, um, being out in the field, um, and talking to different members about this, I've heard a variety of responses about how would we transfer uh, our electronic records if we had to evacuate, a variety of things. I'm not sure what is the best, or, but I have heard things like we put it on a jump drive. I've had answers that, well, we could access our medical records from anywhere because it's you know, over the Internet. I mean, do you have any specific recommendations for, for how they should make sure that they can actually access those records or that they have enough jump drives on hand? You know, that's, that's a really great question, particularly for planning. I, don't, I think there is no one-size-fits-all answer to, to that, and it's going to depend on at what stage of the evolution their facility is at in terms of their record. Um, so for some, it may be making copies and, and having a hard copy available that you pick up the boxes and go. For some, it might be a series of jump drives that you, you can maintain that electronically. For some, it might be a remote site. Um, but probably most important is whatever it is for that facility is that they've taken some time to think through that process and then they've practiced it. During a non-disaster period, once or twice a year, they should say, okay, we've lost our medical record, we don't have power to support this, what do we do next? 
and make sure if nothing else in a tabletop scenario or even in a nice um, what we call a functional exercise where they actually practice the action, um, do that sort of thing a couple times a year so that they don't have to remember what the plan says right. six months, a year, two years down the road after they wrote it down to when they're in the crisis and, and there's too many other things going on to worry about this particular aspect. And I think that the, the other thing to, is to kind of piggyback on Lynn's comments are a couple of points. I mentioned early in, in the podcast the at-risk registry, the software program. If you have a catastrophic failure, somehow the records don't travel with the patient, and things can happen. Is you know I can't stress the importance enough of that program to put all of your patients into that database, whether they're staying, leaving, sheltering in place, whatever they are, because if you fill in all the blanks, their basic status, their diagnosis, their age, their weight, um, and their uh, current condition, whether or not they're on oxygen, whether or not they're on a vent, those pieces of information are secured electronically that's got multiple redundant locations around the country to where we can access. Um, and then the, the planners and folks in a position to be able to assist, whether it's at a parish level in an emergency operations center at the state emergency operations center can um, also assist. The other piece is you talk about jump drives and how many, you know, do you have, if, if you're a lady of the lake and you have 750 <laughs> patients, do you have 750 jump drives on hand right. to, to download records and what is the mechanism, what are the processes, how many people do you have? Right. The other piece that, that I found in fielding calls during events was the, the copiers are not on red plugs. You know, those facilities that don't have whole hospital generators, those copiers, generally speaking, in office-based equipment is not on your generator. So if you're on generator power, how are you going to make those, those copies? So it's something to look at your plan and make adjustments to say, hey, I've got an extension cord just for you, uh, or I'm going to adjust my emergency power status and I'm going to have some, some level of ability to make hard copies and paper copies with generated power uh, from a copy machine. Um, and have enough paper on hand to be able to do that. And then a lot of hospitals, they do the electronic piece on a jump drive, and then they do the basics on paper. Uh, they'll do history, physical, uh, medication records, order sets, uh, some rudimentary uh, progress notes, and they'll put it in Ziplocs um, and transport with the patient physically. Right. You know, Ken brings up a really good point, and I think it's deciding. You, you may not be able to move everything. Uh, and so it's truly deciding what's the most important pieces of information to assure that this patient gets the care they need when they get to the next location uh, and making sure that that's the information that you copy. Um, thinking about jump drives, it, jump drives are a great idea, but it takes time to download a record. And um, as you develop your plan and as you think through what's the process in practicing that, just practicing loading a record onto a jump drive might open your eyes as to say, is that really the best practice for me? Or is there something different that we should do for our facility to protect that information? Especially in hospitals that are new to the electronic record world, a lot of the uh, employees that are working in these hospitals have never used electronic records before. And so that really is a, a farther down the road plan, in my opinion. You have to be ready to go with whatever plan you have now, which means somebody has needed to look at that plan and make sure that all of the elements are still the same from last year. And that's one of my concerns, is that the previous emergency preparedness plan has not been updated based on changes in bed capacity in Louisiana, such as for psychiatric patients. Um, 
those, all of those things need to be considered, especially if you're a host hospital and you have this psychiatric unit. Uh, it's a double it's a double team effort, and um, I think sometimes that that um, feeling like that is a department of the hospital, and we need to plan for those special needs patients gets a little bit pushed to, to the side. And um, so that's one of the concerns that I have, Ken, on when we were talking earlier about, okay, y'all, the state activates the emergency plan for a hurricane or whatever else is coming in. What happens just one thing right after the other and where does that medical record transfer process, where are the patients going, how does that come into play? It it goes back to what Alin said earlier, and it's it's practicing your plan. It's, you know, having, reviewing that annually, having a comprehensive review from multiple levels in the organization because people are going to think things differently. Your medical records, your HIM department, health information management department, is going to have a different set of eyes and context from administration or plant safety or engineering. And so all of those perspectives are valuable because they're all going to bring a little, a little different information um, set to the table of this is from my perspective, this is what could get in the way. Um, this is so all those plans every year need to be looked at and reviewed, practiced, uh, your own tabletop drills from a facility level. We're going to, you know, event um, Godzilla is occurring uh, in Natchitoches, Louisiana. So what is Natchitoches Regional, uh, to pick on Natchitoches, going to do uh, when Godzilla hits the town? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then practice that scenario, whether it's copying records, whether it's down, you know, in advance saying, okay, what does it take to download a medical record? And one, once I download it, is it going to be applicable to wherever that patient goes? You know, it, are they going to have the same system? Are they going to be able to retrieve the data? Um, and, and so having that thought through in advance of who's going to get that patient and having those transfer protocols in place is equally important because then you can understand the receiving facility's infrastructure and what their limitations are and what their capabilities are. And so all of that comes and it all comes into planning and preparation, right? Right, absolutely. And, you know, you made me think of something else that um, is important. A lot of times in disaster preparedness, we talk about using volunteers coming in. But with the advent of the electronic record, we've really learned that outside volunteers really just don't work in a facility. And it's mostly because they don't have the access or the experience with the system to be able to actually chart uh, chart care that has occurred when they've been providing it. So I sometimes wonder if during disasters, if you're going to have to evacuate your patients anyway, if we use an alternate record. We don't use the same old thing that we're using. We back up, we have the information, but in the evacuation process, we have to go to something else because it's just too complicated to take the same thing that we have and place it in an alternate setting. So it might be different for different facilities, but it's probably something to consider. Well, and we need to remember that when we're evacuating patients, they need basic information so they can get set up to receive that patient. And then there's always time later to exchange the detailed information. And I think they kind of forget that, that there is time. You don't have to send the entire three-volume medical record on day one. And I think it's important to know that even though we're talking a lot of focus and spend a lot of focus on the electronic medical record, but understand when that patient gets to location B, that there's going to be a period of time where that patient's going to need information, the staff is going to need information, so some hard copy documentation in addition to is very germane. 
order sets, history and physical, basic um, ad, you know, admission discharge information, demographics on your patient, uh, and some sort of snapshot condition to where a nurse, a physician, or whoever can pick up that piece of paper and read in 30 seconds time, no, I have patient uh, Mrs. Jones, who is a diabetic, um, had insulin at 4 o'clock, needs this type of insulin at 8 o'clock or whatever that would be. And that's, you know, whether it's a behavioral health who has another set of conditions, um, that there's a huge crisis in behavioral health statewide uh, to be able to place those patients. And so early planning for that is even more critically important in some cases. Absolutely, yeah. Planning for those very vulnerable groups like psychiatric patients, like pediatrics, like critical care patients is probably the most important thing that a hospital can do. And making sure that they have thought through what, where is this patient going to go? Um, we are very limited on a day-to-day -day basis for psychiatric care uh, in our state. And so truly developing those relationships with potential host hospitals or how we can handle our patients in a disaster situation is something that must occur long before the hurricane and long before any other disaster occurs so we can keep those patients safe. Um, thinking about pediatrics, um, particularly the technology-dependent um, kids that are out there, um, those in the community as well as those within hospitals, absolutely have to have a good, well-thought-out plan about where those kids are going to go because they're so vulnerable um, to, to injury should, during an evacuation. We want to actually make sure that, that um, that's planned for and absolutely for critical care as well. Yeah, and, and as we wrap up, um, know that, you know, if, if you if you transfer patients within your own systems or if you have your own agreements, then you're in control of how that patient gets from point A to point B. If you have to rely on what the, on the federal government, the National Disaster Management System that we've used in Katrina and Gustav um, and Ike and Rita, understand that we're limited to their capabilities. They cannot take pediatrics, they cannot take psych patients, um, and there are some limitations in the critical care patients they can transport. So having your own plan and your own capabilities uh, is critically important to make sure that you are ultimately successful during a time of any kind of disaster. This has been a really great um, session. I think the common theme that I take away from what we've discussed today is planning. I mean, you have to you have to have a plan in place, and you have to practice your plan. Um, just as we wrap up, I wanted to mention that you can you said that hospitals are encouraged to participate in their uh, in their regional uh, with their regional coordinators. How if how would they get in touch or be involved with their regional coordinator if they're not already for some reason? I think, all, real quick, all hospitals in the state have um, an infrastructure. They have to have an emergency preparedness contact, and so those individuals would be the go-to, and they would understand who their regional coordinators are. Each region has them. Um, they can always contact us at LHA. They can contact me at kalexander at lhaonline.org, first initial, last name, at lhaonline.org, and a Lynn. Um, as well, and um, what's your email address, Lynn? It's A Whaley Martin, so it's A W H A L E Y hyphen M A R T I N at L H A Online dot O R G. And we'd be glad to assist anybody that needs some help. All right, thanks. And all of the trust fund members also have access to myself and Barb Bonche um, if you need more information, or if you need us to direct you um, to more information, we'd be glad to help you. Thank you for listening to our podcast today and um, have a nice day.